0: And welcome, and abandon all hope, ye who enter here. I am your storyteller witch for this special spooky season episode of A is for All Hallows Blood Soaked Notes on Witchcraft. <laughs> As I mentioned in last week's episodes, this and the following two episodes are going to be fully dedicated to spooky season, Halloween, and Samhain. And we're starting off with a bang here because it's Friday the 13th. And tomorrow is the new moon solar eclipse in Libra. And Halloween is just around the corner, so we are going to cover a lot today. Um, we're going to, of course, talk about Friday the 13th and the solar eclipse and the magic and superstition surrounding both. Um, and since these two events are so heavily steeped in superstition and shows up in a lot of folklore the world over, we're just gonna dive head first into superstition and folklore all a bit on the spooky and witchy side, of course. So I have some spooky stories either taken directly from or inspired by folklore to share with you from a few fun sources that I selected from my personal library. Uh, One story in particular that I'll use to segue into a story of a real life Verbalist, who was accused of witchcraft. I'll share some insights into a few of my favorite literary witches, and I'll also be going through some fun lists of some of our absolute favorite TV and movie witches, as well as some of the absolute scariest movie witches. Uh, When we finally wrap up, I will have also provided you with a few little bits of magic to help you enjoy and maybe even survive Spooky Season. (laughs) So settle in, kids. It's time to get a little bit spooky. Uh, And a fair warning to all listeners, the material that I chose to share in this episode is only moderately scary, but also a little bit unsettling. So if you scare easily or if you have difficulty listening to stories with horror themes, you may want to sit this one out. But I promise this is not going to be terrifying or anything like that. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable when this episode is over. (laughs) So only moderately scary is how we're going. With this one. Um, Let's begin with today, because it is Friday the 13th after all. Uh, Considered a very unlucky day, or is it? Most witches would disagree, seeing as how Friday is the day blessed by Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, and the number 13 is one of great transformation and new beginnings and the building of secure foundations for the future. Sounds pretty great to me. So let's take a look at why so many non magical people dread this day shall we? Friday the 13th is considered unlucky not just in modern-day America but in various cultures with several possible origins for the superstitions that surround it. It's difficult to pinpoint the single source, but there are a few theories that shed light on why this combination of day and date is associated with bad luck. The first comes from the Christian perspective. According to Christian tradition, Friday is seen as an unlucky day because it is believed to be the day on which Jesus Christ was crucified. Furthermore, the number 13 is considered unlucky as there were 13 individuals present at the Last Supper, including Judas Iscariot, who is designated as the 13th dinner guest, who betrayed Jesus. This combination of an unlucky day and an unlucky number has contributed to the fear surrounding Friday the 13th from the Christian perspective. Another possible source comes from Norse mythology, which predates the Christianization of Scandinavia. In Norse mythology, there is a story about a banquet in Valhalla attended by 12 gods. Loki, the trickster god, was not invited, but crashed the event, making him the 13th guest. He caused chaos and ultimately led to the death of the beloved god Baldur, further adding to the notion that 13 is an unlucky number and a 13th dinner guest is especially undesirable. And a third theory comes not from religious mythology, but from a piece of history. On Friday, October 13th, 1307, King Philip IV of France ordered the arrest and torture of the Knights Templar, a powerful and wealthy medieval Christian military order. This event may have played a role in associating Friday the 13th with bad luck. The Knights were accused of various charges, including heresy, blasphemy, and financial corruption. And the idea is that the arrest of the Knights Templar on this date led to the belief that Friday's and the number 13 were both symbols of bad luck. And this superstition has persisted over the centuries, contributing to the fear associated with Friday the 13th in most Western cultures. And finally, we come to numerology and folklore. Some people are superstitious about the number 13 in general, believing it to be a symbol of bad luck due to its irregular and unconventional nature in terms of numerology. In many cultures, the number 13 is considered irregular because it follows the more complete and harmonious number 12. 12 is often associated with completeness and order due to its prevalence in various contexts, such as 12 months of the year, 12 zodiac signs, 12 hours on the clock, and so on. In contrast, 13 is seen as an outlier. Some numerologists view the number 13 as a symbol of disruption, imbalance, or imperfection due to this perceived irregularity. Uh, And this can contribute to the superstition that the number 13 brings bad luck. However, as I said before... Just like its association with the death card in tarot, the number 13 can also be seen as a number of transformation and new beginnings. Because nothing just ends. 12 may be a number of completion, but after completion, we must start again. We exist in cycles, not beginnings and endings. And as far as folklore surrounding Fridays, the belief that Friday is an unlucky day has roots in various Folkloric traditions, cultures, and historical events. As we know in Christian tradition, Good Friday is the day that Jesus was crucified, which is a somber and significant event. Um, Some ancient cultures, such as Norse mythology, as mentioned earlier, considered Friday an unlucky day due to certain legends and beliefs. In Norse mythology, Friday is named after the Norse goddess Frigg, also known as Frigga, and she was considered the queen of the Aesir gods and the wife of Odin, a chief of the gods. Frigg was associated with love, marriage, and domesticity, and she was a powerful and respected figure in the Norse pantheon. However, a belief or legend emerged in some Norse-influenced cultures that associated Friday with bad luck due to a story related to Frigg. And this belief revolves around the idea that Friday was associated with certain events or actions that were considered ill-omened. The exact nature of these associations can vary, but a common belief was that Friday was a day to avoid important endeavors or journeys because it was seen as a day when bad things might happen. The negative connotations surrounding Friday in Norse mythology might have contributed to a broader superstition about Friday being an unlucky day in Western folklore. Uh, And this belief in the combination of the superstition of the number 13 and the other cultural influences that led to the fear of Friday the 13th as an especially ominous day in some cultures prevails. Uh, It's important to note that these beliefs are rooted in cultural and historical contexts and are not universally held. Different cultures have different superstitions and beliefs about the days of the week and not everyone subscribes to the idea that Friday has any sort of bad luck associated with it. For example, myself, Friday is associated with Frigg and also Freya, the goddess of love, sex, and witchcraft in Norse mythology, both deities that many pagans are devoted to, as well as the planet Venus and the Greek goddess Aphrodite, Roman Venus, representing love, beauty, comfort, friendship, among many other things. And for many witches and spiritual individuals, Friday is a day for love, self-love, and self-care, and of course, magic. So if we can dispense with outdated superstition and look at Friday the 13th as a day of both love and magic, and of also new beginnings, we might take some suggestions from Judica Isles in her book Daily Magic. Sprinkle salt on your doorstep to receive increased luck and protection, and also to protect from entities or influences who feed on the fear associated with the day. Or try this Holly Leaves True Love Friday Dream Spell, a spell specifically intended to be cast on Fridays. From the moment you venture out in the evening to pick the Holly Leaves until you wake up in the morning and record your dreams, total silence must be maintained. Don't make a sound. Pick nine holly leaves as the clock strikes midnight beginning Friday. They may be sharp, so be careful. Wrap them in a white handkerchief and place these beneath your pillow to incubate dreams of your true love. Okay, so we, before we move on to spooky tales and the scariest witches, let's talk about tomorrow's solar eclipse and the new moon in Libra. Tomorrow's solar eclipse taking place at 1.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to be exact, is also, as I've said, a new moon in Libra. Every energy that is typically available on a new moon is available during a solar eclipse as well, except many consider it to be to a greater degree. You can think of them as new moons that have been supercharged. But also, some individuals um, consider this to be accompanied by a strong chaotic energy which is one reason why some people abstain from any magical workings during an eclipse however not all do some consider these events to be portals to the higher states of consciousness that can help us speed up the process of any work we're doing on ourselves looking deep within to understand even more about ourselves and where we fit in in this universe as well as where we're meant to go And since this particular solar eclipse is happening in the sign of Libra, we can expect an opportunity to get much deeper into our work where relationships, balance, and even justice is concerned. It may be time to start to change the dynamics in some of our relationships. Are we giving too much and receiving too little? Or are we to discover that we've been the one taking and not giving? Even if these realizations and the necessary steps to restore balance are difficult and possibly painful, the energy of love and new beginnings that precedes the eclipse on Friday the 13th seems to arrive just in time to support us in these power struggles. Uh, and just as the eclipse shows us literally eclipsing the sun and bringing about darkness before returning to the light, we too must occasionally venture into the deep darkness in order to bring these issues into the light. But since we're discussing a lot of superstitions and fears and spooky tales today, let's discuss why some practitioners absolutely will not work any magic whatsoever during the eclipse. It is not a condition for all practitioners, only some, and for different reasons, which can be rooted in various cultural and historical superstitions and beliefs, not universally held again. Um, So let's take a look at them. Some practitioners of magic believe that energy and vibrations during an eclipse are different from those of other times. Eclipses involve the alignment of the sun, moon, and earth, and this alignment is thought to disrupt the flow of cosmic energies. It is believed that this disruption can affect the outcome of magical rituals or spells, making them unpredictable or potentially chaotic or even negative. Eclipses also have historically been associated with darkness, mystery, and the unknown. And in many cultures, the darkening of the sun or moon during an eclipse was seen as an ominous event. Some people associated eclipses with negative or chaotic forces and believe that working magic during an eclipse may tap into these forces, leading to, again, undesirable or uncontrollable outcomes. Cultural and historical superstitions can play a significant role in shaping beliefs about eclipses and magic. These superstitions may have been passed through generations and become part of a magical tradition. And in some cases, eclipses have been linked with negative events or omens in folklore, further reinforcing the idea that they are not suitable for magical work. And in some astrological magical traditions, eclipses are seen as inauspicious moments In the cosmic cycle, the alignment of celestial bodies during an eclipse may be believed to disrupt the balance and harmony of the universe, making it a less favorable time for magical practices as well. These are just a few among many examples of why some practitioners abstain from magic during an eclipse. Others do not, looking at this as an opportunity to work even more powerful magic. Did I mention that this eclipse is going to be really good for justice? I think I did. So different magical traditions, as well as individual practitioners, have varying perspectives on eclipses. But as with any magical practice, individual beliefs and preferences can greatly influence whether one chooses to perform magic during an eclipse or avoid it. The choice is yours. Okay, let's tell stories. (laughs) Let's tell stories. A little spooky, extremely superstitious, and quite... Witchy, and from some interesting sources. Uh, The books I pulled to share some stories from are Tales of Witchcraft and Wonder by Claude and Corinne Le The Virago Book of Witches, edited by Sharuk Hussein, and Scary Stories 3 from the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series by Alvin Schwartz. And I'll also be periodically sharing a few favorite literary witches from *Literary Witches: A Celebration of Magical Women Writers* by Taisha Kittaskea, illustrations by Katie Horan, and forward by Pam Grossman. Let me start with that. Actually, from *Literary Witches: A Celebration of Magical Women Writers*, the word "witch" is thrown around a lot these days as an insult, an identifier a badge of honor. We picture a witch and we picture a multiplicity. She's a hideous woman in a pointed hat, a sibyl swaying with prophetic dreams, a bride of the devil, a devotee of the divine feminine, a Salem villager, an herbalist, a seductress, a forest dweller in a hut made of detritus and chicken legs or candy, a 1990s teenager in pentagrams with plaid. What does the word witch mean though? And perhaps more importantly, What do we mean when we use it? The origin is unclear. A bit of research will tell you that it's perhaps a derivation of old Germanic words that mean wise or to bend or willow. I like all of these options, even more so when considered together. I think of someone who is knowledgeable in the art of shape-shifting, someone plugged into an ancient culture, someone who is pliable, not out of resignation, but out of self-preservation. She's an intelligent, resilient being who changes with the times, and changes the times along with her. And one thing is certain, a witch is very often a she. And I've come to realize that the witch is arguably the only female archetype that has power on its own terms. She is not defined by anyone else. Wife, sister, mother, virgin, whore. These archetypes draw meaning based on relationships with others. The witch, however, is a woman who stands entirely on her own. She is more often than not an outsider, and her gift is transformation. She is a change agent, and her work is sparked by speech, an incantation, a naming, a blessing, a curse. Who is more worthy of this moniker than female writers who themselves conjure worlds out of words? Certainly they have much in common with witches— Women who create things other than children are considered dangerous by many. They are marginalized, trivialized, or totally ignored. Too often, they are excluded from the artistic canon, but they are weaponized nonetheless. For let's recall that many occultic words are connected to those of language, spelling and spells, grammar and grimoire. Abracadabra is thought to be derived from an Aramaic phrase that translates to I create like the word. To write, then, is to make magic. And so it follows that to be a female writer is, in fact, to be kind of a witch. Welcome the Witch by Pam Grossman. And our first literary witch is Shirley Jackson, American Horror Writer, 1916-1965. to Shirley Jackson's fiction, which marries the ordinary with the supernatural, often speaks to the inhumanities people are prone to when given half a chance. Her most famous story on the subject, The Lottery, was written after rural Vermont residents painted a swastika on her house. Her husband, a professor at Bennington College, was Jewish. Yet, keen observation and a sense of humor pervade many of her works, especially her very funny essays on raising four kids. To escape her demonic children, Shirley once had a long, antagonistic argument with her hairdryer in the bathroom. One. While still alive, Shirley transformed the stones neighbors threw at her into rabid cats, poisoned beetles, and blood-tipped needles. She buried these treasures in the backyard. Years later, the treasures crawl back up through the soil. The neighborhood is plagued by pests and pins to this day. Shirley's ghost haunts the ice cream section at your 24 hour grocery store at 3 a.m. wearing cotton socks and noting human behavior on a little writing pad. She doesn't need help finding anything. And speaking of witches, let's take a dive into the Virago Book of Witches to a tale spun about possibly a real life witch. Possibly not though, who knows? Biddy Early, the priest, and the crow from irish folk tales biddy was sick and very bad now i can't tell you whether the way this parish priest was sent for or that he heard about her being sick but anyway he went to the house when she was in bed and he went into the room to hear her confession and where he was hearing her confession at the back of the house there was a big ash tree outside And generally, in nearly all the old houses, there are very small windows, but the small window, anyway, was at the back of the room, and facing the tree. And there was a crow outside in the tree, and the crow having caw, 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 all the time while the priest was hearing her confession. But after the confession, Biddy says to him, Father, she said, you could bring in that crow to the end of the bed. I'll try anyway, says he. He started to pray and read out of the book. The crow was all the time outside in the tree having caw, caw, caw out of him. But when the priest finished reading out of the book, I'll bring her in, says Biddy. She sat up in the bed and she lifted up a pillow and took out her magic bottle from under it. And whatever she said or whatever she did, the back window was open and the crow flew in and perched on the end of the bed and started to caw, caw, caw. Biddy says to the priests, that's what you couldn't do now. "'Will you put the crow out now?' says she to him. He started to pray and pray. The crow started on the end of the bed, "'Caw, caw, caw,' all the time. "'Well, I'll put her out,' says Biddy. She held the bottle out in her hand, with the neck of it facing the crow, and the crow flew out the window again and up and started, "'Caw, caw, caw,' above in a tree again. She gave the bottle to the priest. "'There, tis for you now,' she says." And you'll have the same powers as I had. But what did the priest do with it? Only threw it in the Kilbarren Lake. And tis supposed to be there yet. So the story Biddy Early, The Priest and the Crow, is inspired by a real-life person and taken from In Search of Biddy Early by Edmund Lenehan Dublin, The Mercier Press, 1987. So, upon reading this story and the historical background or inspiration for it that can be found in the back of the book, I went on to learn a little bit about the starring witch, Biddy Early. Bridget Ellen Biddy Early lived in 1798 to 1872 in County Clare, Ireland. She was a traditional herbalist and a bonfasa, or seer, or wise woman, who helped her neighbors. And when she acted against the wishes of the local tenant farmer landlords and Catholic priests, she was falsely accused of witchcraft. As a child, she spent most of her time alone and was said to talk to the fairies. Her mother was well known for her exceptional herbal cures and taught Biddy many of her recipes, which were regarded as family secrets, as was common for the time. When Biddy was 16 years old, her parents passed away, and unable to pay the rent, she eventually left her childhood home and began a period of working for landlords in Carheen near Limerick, or living in poorhouses where she was often taunted for her aloof behavior. She eventually married her first husband, a man who was twice her age, with whom she had a son named Patty and lived in a three-room cottage in Fecal, where she began to earn her reputation for having the ability to cure various ailments. However, widowed at 25, Biddy eventually remarried her stepson, and during this time, her fame was ever-increasing. But there was a chance that this caused great disruption in her family life, because her son, Patty, eventually left some years later after her second marriage and never returned. Her second husband died from a liver ailment when Biddy was 42. She eventually married a third time to a man younger than her, and they went on to live in a two-room cottage on the Dromore Hill in Kilbarren, situated over a lake which came to be known as Biddy Early's Lake. And it is at this time that her fame as a renowned healer reached its peak. Whenever someone was unable to get help that they needed from priests or doctors, or if they couldn't afford to see a doctor they would come see Biddy. She would also occasionally treat animals as agricultural life greatly depended on the cooperation between man and beast. And as legend will tell, during this time, Biddy acquired a strange bottle that became just as famous as she was. She was witness frequently looking into the bottle, which contained a sort of dark liquid, when considering possible cures for her clients. She took the bottle everywhere, and it was said to even be with her when she died, as the tale I just read illustrates. Her cures are the main reason she became well-known, but her strong personality was also an important factor. In many ways, what Biddy reportedly did in her life is nothing more than what any oppressed individual living in her time would have dreamed of having the bravery to do themselves. She was independent and she refused to be browbeaten by priests and landlords and their authoritarian ways. At the time, the Catholic Church held authority over the lives of many people and, of course, did not approve of Biddy's activities, even though she encouraged people to listen to their priests. Regardless of this, the priests were very openly disapproving of her and discouraged people from visiting her, although many secretly continued to keep doing so. People generally believed she was good, despite what local priests had to say about a woman practicing medicine, as well as what was considered by them to be peasant lore and herbal medicine below them, and their status as having come from comfortable backgrounds and more extensive education. So, in 1865, Biddy was accused of witchcraft under the Witchcraft Act of 1586, and was brought before a court in Ennis. This was actually quite unusual in the 1860s, and the few individuals who agreed to testify against her later backed out. She was released for a lack of sufficient evidence, and many of the locals supported her and celebrated her freedom. In 1868, Biddy was widowed for the third time at age 70, and in the next year, she was married for a fourth time to a man who was just 30 years old in exchange for a cure. They lived together in her cottage in Kilbarren until he too died within a year of their marriage, reportedly from overconsumption of alcohol. Biddy herself didn't die until 1874, and she did in fact have a priest at her bedside as the tale from the Virago Book of Witches tells. What their actual exchange of words might have been, however, is folklore. And one favorite literary witch of mine that seems to capture the spirit of Biddy Early, in a sense, but lived in the 20th century, is Audre Lorde. Born in New York City to West Indian parents, Audre Lorde proudly proclaimed herself a Black lesbian feminist. As an activist and essayist, she was outspoken about racism, sexism, and homophobia. In addition to these themes, her work is populated with mothers, children, sisters, anger cancer the erotic unicorns snails eating dead snakes witches fire and the importance of refusing silence period directions to an audrey lord lecture take you to a cave audrey hands you a torch and a sword at the entrance the torch for finding the hieroglyphics inside the sword is for slaying ghosts and demons along the way audrey's voice at your back is for pushing you onward In Night's Secret Wood, where women go to eat their own hearts, Audrey is a goddess rising from the pond of lava. Women approach timidly, but accept her proffered hand. Audrey dips them into the bubbling gold and they emerge in molten suits, lava filling their wounds. Audrey's coroner writes, Subject's left arm appears to be a dozing woman. Right arm is a little girl drinking milk from her palm. Back is a huddled mother. Legs, two women kissing hair as tadpoles, eyes snails, tongue a frog. The frog springs onto the coroner's face and he runs screaming from the room. Audre Lord, warrior witch of otherness, bodies electric, and sisterhood. Moving on to tales of witchcraft and wonder, I want to read to you The Venomous Maiden, as well as the description from where these stories come. I told you there's gonna be a lot of storytelling here. The Venomous Maiden. When Alexander was born, a neighboring king who wanted to seize Philip's lands learned the child's future through his diviners. They told him that when the child was grown, he would triumph over him. He therefore mused on ways that he could cause the child's death. He had an attractive young girl of high estate kidnapped and had her fed on poison in a remote location. She grew up to be an intelligent and beautiful maiden. She learned to play the harp. When she reached the age when it was possible for her to know a man, she was so poisonous that her breath corrupted the air and killed any animal that approached her. A more powerful sovereign than this king declared war on him and laid siege to his fortress. One night, the besieged king had the maiden go out with two other young women who were not venomous. They arranged that they could appear before the monarch, who was the head of his army. When he saw the beautiful maiden... He desired her at once, and when night fell, he brought her into his tent. As soon as he kissed her, he fell dead, as did a number of knights who came too close to her. That night, the forces that had been besieged made a sortie and crushed their adversaries, who no longer had a leader. This is how the king got rid of his enemy. He had the maiden kept under guard and fed with the purest poison. This king learned that Alexander had begun his conquests, and that his name was now feared and dreaded through much of the world. He ordered that four maidens, along with the venomous damsel, the most beautiful of them all, be made ready, and together, with five young men, given to Alexander as a present and sign of their allegiance. He also sent silver and jewels, the better to hide his treachery. When he received this beautiful gift, Alexander was enchanted and wanted to kiss the maiden. But Aristotle, a clerk in his court, and Socrates, his teacher, prevented him from doing so. And he dared not contradict them socrates had two serfs brought in and ordered the first of them to kiss the maiden he obeyed and fell to the ground dead the same thing happened to the second serf alexander knew this way that his teachers were right he then had her decapitated and on his orders her head was burned very far away now there's two versions of the story the second version still referring to alexander the great The philosopher Aristotle was the tutor of the powerful king Alexander, and he taught him everything he knew. Because the renown of his sovereign had even made its way to the queen of the north, she had fed her daughter on poison from the day she was born. When she reached the age of reason, she was so beautiful and offered such a charming appearance in the eyes of everyone that more than one among them became confused and besotted. The queen sent her to Alexander to be his concubine, When he saw her, he fell in love with her on the spot and wished to have her right then and there. Aristotle saw this and told him, "'Give her up or die. She has been fed poison since she was an infant. I am going to prove it to you. There is a criminal here who has been condemned to death. Have him approach her and you will see that I speak the truth.' It was no sooner said than done. The man kissed the maiden in everyone's presence and died immediately." Seeing this, Alexander warmly praised the philosopher for sparing him from certain death, and he sent the girl back to her mother. Now, this is taken from an Indian tale, and this legend made its way into the West by way of the translations of an Arab text, the Kitab Sir Al-Asrar, the Secret of Secrets. In Latin, by John Seville at the beginning of the 12th century and by Philip of Tripoli around 1234 and in Hebrew by Judah al-Haziri, who died in 1225. It can be found in the entire tradition of the Secret of Secrets and later in the works of Roger Bacon and Philippus de Ferrara. Depending on the texts, the maiden can kill with her gaze, in Latin, her breath, Italian, her kisses and her perspiration, Hebrew, by her bite, Dutch and German, and through coitus, Italian. According to Avicenna, 980 to 1037, and Razas, 865 to 925, her saliva is deadly. In the Latin and Hebrew versions, the antagonist is the Queen of India, whereas in the Arab text, she is the mother of the king of that country. And that is the folklore of the venomous maiden. Mary Shelley, British author of Frankenstein, 1797 to 1851. Frankenstein isn't the garish zombie story we've seen in pop culture. Inspired by scientific discussions of the day and Shelley's complex feelings about parenting, Frankenstein is a painful tale about the creation of life and what happens to shunned, abandoned children. Her life was as harrowing as her famous novel. Her great losses of her mother, feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, died during Shelley's birth, husband, poet Percy B. Shelley, drowned in a sailing accident, And children, only one of four survived, tried her ideals for domestic harmony. After she loses most of her family, Mary experiments with potions to bring back the departed. She places her mother's papers, locks of her children's hair, and a tiny model of her husband's sailboat into a vial, pours in seawater, buds from the garden, and shakes. At night, no matter what she does, Mary's laboratory becomes a cemetery, Lantern becomes moon. Instruments become shovels. Tables turn to coffins. Mary sighs. She places her hand into the enormous, awkward paw of a waiting creature, and they walk together among the graves. Mary Shelley, alchemist of monsters, children, the living and the dead. So Mary Shelley's drawing a parallel from her Frankenstein monster to the struggles of abandoned children draws me back to The Virago Book of Witches, to a story that should become very familiar to you as I read it. It comes from Portugal. There once was a woman who had a son and a daughter. The mother one day sent her son to buy five reese worth of beans and then said to both, My children, go as far out on the road as you shall find shells of beans strewed on the path, and when you reach the wood, you will find me there collecting firewood. The children did as they were bid, and after the mother had gone out, they went following the track of the beans, which she had sent strewing along the road. But they did not find her in the wood, or anywhere else. As night had come on, they perceived in the darkness a light shining in the distance, easy of access." They walked on towards it, and they soon came to an old woman who was frying cakes. The old woman was blind in one eye, and the boy went on the blind side and stole a cake, because he felt so hungry. Believing that it was her cat which had stolen the cake, she said, "'You thief of a cat! Leave my cakes alone. They are not meant for you.' The little boy now saw this, and said to his sister, "'You go now and take a cake.' But the little girl replied, "'I cannot do so, as I am sure to laugh.' Still, as the boy persisted upon it and urged her to try, she had no other alternative but to do so. She went on the side of the old woman's blind eye and stole another of her cakes. The old woman, again thinking that it was her cat, said, "'Be off!' "'Shoo, you old pussy! These cakes are not meant for you!' The little girl now burst out into a fit of laughter, and the old hag, turning round then, noticed the two children and addressed them thus, "'Ah, is it you, my dear grandchildren?' eat, eat away and get fat. She then took hold of them and thrust them into a large box full of chestnuts and shut them up. The next day she came close to the box and spoke to them thus, show me your little fingers, my pets, that I may be able to judge whether you have grown fat and sleek. The children put out their little fingers as desired. But the next day the old hag asked them again, show your little fingers, my little dears, that I may see if you have grown fat and plump. The children, instead of their little fingers, showed her the tail of a cat they had found inside the box. The old hag then said, My pets, you can come out now. You have grown nice and plump. She took them out of the box and told them they must go with her to gather sticks. The children went into the wood, searching one way, while the old hag took another direction. When they had arrived at a certain spot, they met a fae. This fay said to them, you are gathering sticks, my children, to heat the oven, but you do not know that the old hag wants to bake you in it. She further told them that the old witch meant to order them to stand on the baker's peel, saying, stand on this peel, my little pets, that I may see you dance in the oven, but that they were to ask her to sit upon it herself first so that they might learn the way to do it. The fae then went away. Shortly after they had met with this good lady, they found the old witch in the wood. They gathered together and bundled all the fire sticks they had collected and carried them home to heat the oven. When they finished heating the oven, the old hag swept it carefully out and then said to the little ones, "'Sit here, my little darlings, on this peel, that I may see how prettily you dance in the oven.' The children replied to the witch, as the good fay had instructed them, "'Sit you here, little granny, that we may first see you dance in the oven.' As the hag's intention was to bake the children, she sat on the peel first so as to coax them to do the same after her. But the very moment the children saw her on the peel, they thrust the peel into the oven and the witch upon it. The old hag gave a start and was burnt to a cinder immediately after. The children took possession of the shed and all it contained. Now, when I was reading that, I was like, really? You guys went off in a different direction to find sticks and didn't just run for your lives? But then at the end of the book, they take her, they take her shed and all her belongings. So I guess that was part of the plan. This is a variation of Hansel and Gretel: the abandoning mother, the food-depriving cannibal witch, and the victorious children all appear. But here, the children take over the witch's home. In her contests with children, the witch is often stupid. Portuguese folk tales, Conciliari Pedroso, translated by Henriqueta Monteiro, London Folklore Society, eighteen. 82. Emily Dickinson, one of the greatest poets of all time, 1830 to 1886. Emily Dickinson spent her whole life in Amherst, Massachusetts, refusing conventional religion and her prominent family's exhausting social schedule. She instead cultivated a unique spiritual and social life. She wrote long letters to friends, worked in the garden, and created strikingly original poetry about God, death, pain, and love. When Dickinson died, even those closest to her were shocked to find her life's work of 1,800 poems neatly folded in a drawer. You might look into your garden and see a white dress kneeling in the flower beds. Nobody in it. That's Emily. Come back to Earth to joke with her worm friends. Or you might notice a comely mink in the Amherst woods whispering to a pond, Every year, Emily possesses this particular mink to recite her new poems in mink language to her best reader, The Black Pond. But you are luckiest if you see her on a rooftop wearing flies' wings. Before you can say her name, Emily swoops on from house to house, country to country, observing and perceiving. When she tires, God sends her a ditch, and Emily leaps into it, falling down and down. Emily Dickinson. Spectre of Windows, Flies, and the Unexpected. Okay. Now let's move on to scary stories to tell in the dark. I absolutely adored these books growing up, and I remember purchasing all three at the school book fair when I was in fifth grade. Hopefully, I'm not dating myself, as well as carrying them home in my arms as if they were this absolute treasure that I now owned for myself. What I didn't bother to find out at the time is at the end of each of these installments, the author explains where his inspiration for each story, song, or poem comes from. And they come from folklore, and he provides an explanation and a source for each one. So while many of us might not rush to to put scary stories to tell in the dark in the same category as the Virago Book of Witches or Tales of Witchcraft and Wonder, it certainly does, in fact, earn its place as maybe a young beginner's version of these same texts. And here is the story that I chose to share. It is called Such Things Happen. When Bill Nelson's cow stopped giving milk, he called the veterinarian, There's nothing wrong with that cow, said the vet. She's just stubborn. That or some good witch got a hold of her. Bill and the vet both had a laugh. That old hag, Addie Fitch, I guess she's the closest we've got to a witch around here, the vet said. But witches have gone out of style, haven't they? Bill had had a run-in with Addie Fitch a month before. He had hit and hurt her cat with his car. I'm really sorry, Addie Fitch, he told her. I'll get you a new cat, just as pretty, just as good. Her eyes filled with hate. I raised that cat from Kitten, she hissed. I loved her. You'll be sorry for this, Bill Nelson. Bill sent her a new cat and heard nothing more. Then his cow stopped giving milk. Next, his old truck broke down. After that, his wife fell and broke her arm. We're having a lot of bad luck, he thought. Then he thought, maybe it is Addie Fitch getting even. And then, hey, you don't believe in witches. You're just upset. But Bill's grandpa believed in witches. He had once told Bill that there was only one sure way to stop a witch from causing trouble. You find a black walnut tree, he said, and you draw her picture on it. Then you mark an X where her heart is, and you drive a nail into the X. Every day, you drive it a little bit deeper. If she's causing the trouble, he said, she'll feel pain. And when she can't stand it anymore, she'll come to you, or she'll send somebody and try to borrow something. And if you give her what she wants, that breaks the power of the nail. And she'll go on tormenting you. But if you don't, she'll have to stop. Or the pain will kill her. That's what his nice, gentle, old grandpa believed. It's pure craziness, Bill thought. Of course, his grandpa didn't have much schooling. Bill had been to college. He knew better. Then Bill's dog, Joe, a perfectly healthy dog, became ill. Just like that. It made Bill angry. Despite all of his schooling, he thought, Maybe it is Addie Fitch after all. He got a red crayon from his son's room and a hammer and a nail and went into the woods. He found a black walnut tree and drew a picture of Addie Fitch on it. He made an X where her heart was, like his grandpa had said to do. With the hammer, he drove the nail a little way into the X. Then he went home. I feel like a fool, he told his wife. You should, she said. The next day, a boy named Timmy Logan came by. Addie Fitch isn't feeling well, he said. She wonders if she could borrow some sugar from you. Bill Nelson stared at Timmy in amazement. He took a deep breath. Tell her I'm sorry, but I don't have any sugar right now, he said. When Timmy Logan left, Bill went back to the walnut tree and drove the nail in another inch. The next day, the boy came back. Addie Fitch is pretty sick, he said. She's wondering if you've got any sugar yet. Tell her I'm sorry, Bill Nelson said, but I still don't have any. Bill went out into the woods and drove the nail in another inch. The following day, the boy was back. Addie Fitch is getting sicker, he said. She really needs some sugar. Tell her I still don't have any, Bill answered. Bill's wife was angry. You've got to stop this, she said. If this mumbo-jumbo works, it's like murder. I'll stop when she does, he said. Toward dusk, he stood in the yard, staring at the ridge where the old lady lived, wondering what was going on up there. Then, in the half-darkness, he saw Addie Fitch coming slowly down the hill toward him. With her pinched, bony face and her old black coat, she did look like a witch. As she got closer, Bill saw that she could barely walk. Maybe I'm really hurting her, he thought. He ran to get his hammer to pull the nail out, but before he could leave, Addie was in the yard, her face twisted with rage. First you hurt my cat, she said. Then you wouldn't give me a bit of sugar when I needed it, she swore at him and fell dead at his feet. I'm not surprised that she dropped dead that way, the doctor said later. She was very old, maybe 90. It was her heart, of course. Some people thought she was a witch, Bill said. I've never heard that, the doctor said. Somebody I know thought Addie Fitch had witched them, Bill went on. He drew a picture of her on a tree and drove a nail into it to make her stop. That's an old superstition, the doctor said. But people like us don't believe in that sort of thing, do we? And discovering the back of the book for the first time very recently, I see such things happen. This is a traditional American legend in which a person believes he is being tormented by a witch and tries to stop her. In some stories, the person tries to kill the witch by drawing her picture and firing a silver bullet into it, or by hammering a nail into it. I adapted and expanded this theme to point up the conflict between the education and superstition that may arise when an educated person feels that events are out of control. See in Thompson, Granny Frone, Tales and Legends, and Ozark Magic by Yarbrough. So that is all that I have in the way of spooky tales and folklore. It wasn't that scary. I also want to assure everyone that the cat and the dog are fine just don't read the story for yourself. They're fine. So before I read, um, these fun lists that I have and let you go, I want to share a recipe for a, a spirit banishing incense. I can't just leave you with a chill in your spine and not provide you a little something to help you deal with your own little spookies, right? (laughs) This recipe comes from exemplar.com, spirit banishing incense. Burn this if you are worried that baneful spirits are bothering you during this season when the veil is thin. You will need three parts frankincense, two parts garden or culinary sage, one part ground angelica root, one part St. John's wort, and one part bay. If you feel a particularly malevolent spirit is about, you may add one part fumatory or a pinch of garlic powder. Just a pinch. It's strong. And if your frankincense is not already thoroughly ground, let it air dry overnight, ground it in your mortar and pestle going counterclockwise while focusing on banishing. After the frankincense is ground, add the other ingredients one at a time to incorporate and blend them. Burn to rid the area of unwanted spirits. If burning indoors, open all windows. Okay, let's talk about scary witches from movies. I browsed a lot of lists until finding one that I liked, and I want to hear from you on this one. If you've seen any of these movies and you agree with these, um, that they're truly scary witches, or if you think you have a better suggestion, let me know. I want to know all about it. And if you're simply not down with the scary witch genre because of the potential damage it could do to the community, then I apologize. And this is very coming late in the episode. This is meant to be all in good fun. And many witches who are also horror fans see this as simply a subgenre of horror films that simply appeal to them even more. Despite how completely nonsensical and lacking in any factual context whatsoever they may be, they are pure entertainment for some of us who enjoy a good scare every now and then. So this is the 10 scariest movie witches from Screen Rant by Allison Stahlberg, 2020. Double, double toil and trouble. Read this list of scary witches on the double. (laughs) Witches have been the center of human imagination for a long time, particularly in villainous roles, though they also have been good guys like Bonnie Bennett, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the magicians, and the young witches in more recent movies like The Craft 2 and Hocus Pocus 2. All told, witches of today's pop culture pieces are more diverse than ever. But still, witches as scary antagonists remain the most popular archetype in both classic films as well as some lesser-known hidden gems. And while they're all frightening in their own way, the witches on this list have different reasons for being so. Some are visual horrors, while others are terrifying, specifically because you never actually get to see them at all. Whether they are scary to look at or scary for other reasons, these witches will have you sleeping with the lights on after you watch the movies that they are featured in. Number one, and these are not ranked, just listed out. Number one, the Blair Witch. The genius behind what makes the Blair Witch so scary is that the audience never even gets to see her, as long as you stick to the first movie, that is. (laughs) Actually, I think the first two. Sometimes seeing a character makes them less scary. And what's left for the viewers of the Blair Witch Project is just their imagination. And that is a powerful scare tool. In terms of what is actually known about the Blair Witch, there are mostly only theories. But perhaps the truest thing about her is that she has scared off countless moviegoers from ever wanting to go camping again. Number two, the Woodland Witch from the movie The Witch. This witch was only seen briefly in the film, The Witch, but she stuck in the minds of those that saw her. She first appears as a beautiful woman deep in the forest, but the moment her hands touch the young child who approaches her, her true older form is revealed. Beyond this scene, little is known about this witch. She appears to be partly at fault for the family being cursed, and her powers are pretty horrifying in that sense. Throughout the film we see her bewitch, spy, make illusions, and even make little boys vomit of apples rude number three margaret morgan from the lords of salem this 2012 horror thriller got mixed reviews but won the hearts of some horror fans it had a pretty memorable witch margaret morgan the leader of a witch coven most of what we see of her is what she is capable of and through visions of the character heidi but doesn't make the witch herself any less scary Margaret cursed the protagonist in a way where her own life is beyond her control. Not only is that power horrifying, but the witch also doesn't seem to care about personal hygiene, which is terrifying in its own way. (laughs) Number four, The Witch from Sleepy Hollow, 1999. The legend of Sleepy Hollow is one that gets told over and over again with different details and was even adapted for a Fox TV series. In the 1999 film adaptation starring Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci, there was a pretty creepy witch. Though some find her more humorous than scary, it depends on whether audiences see her actions as dark or darkly funny. Her scariest moment is when her face is actually revealed from under the veil. Her skin looks dead and cracked, her eye sockets are empty, and her teeth are sharp as nails. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Allow me to push my glasses up my nose with my finger and say, actually, (laughs) because I have to, I'm sorry. There are three witches, at least, in the 1999 film Sleepy Hollow, and the one spoken of here is one of two twins. The one who is not responsible for the curse of the Headless Horseman and lives in a cave in the forest. And the scene described here is when the witch, who typically looks like an unkempt version of her beautiful married into money and power sister, channels some dark spirits in order to get an answer that Ichabod Crane seeks. And it is here that her face changes into the scary one that is described in the article. Uh, It is implied to be the face of the dark spirit that has jumped into her body to communicate with Ichabod. But it's not her actual appearance and not what she looks like uh, in any other part of the movie. That said, yeah, she's pretty fucking scary in that moment. (laughs) Number five, Nancy from The Craft, of course. The Craft is a fantasy horror film from 1996, and it revolves around teenage girl outcasts who decide to practice witchcraft in order to get what they want. Nancy stands pretty far apart from the other witches on this list. She is quite humanized in comparison, although she lets the power get to her head and becomes the main antagonist in the film. She isn't afraid to make any sacrifice to get what she wants. But by getting into witchcraft, she goes from troubled and rebellious to mentally unhinged. Number six is Haggis from Pumpkinhead. I watched Pumpkinhead long before I was probably old enough to, and it it scared me. It scared me good. <laughs> Haggis from Pumpkinhead teaches an old lesson, and that is to never make deals with witches. This 1988 film is a monster horror movie with a cult following. The witch isn't the movie's main monster, but rather she creates it for a grieving man who wants revenge. He originally goes to her with the hopes of bringing someone dear to him back from the dead, but instead she plants vengeance into his head. As it does with witch deals, it ends up costing the man greatly. Number seven, Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter series. Ugh. Honestly, I did not find her to be very scary. Like most people, I found her to be a giant see you next Tuesday. But I guess you can take her complacency when it comes to allowing a dark lord to attempt to take over the world as pretty fucking evil. History will teach us all about that one. Anyway, not all scary witches come from horror movies, nor do they all reject good hygiene habits. Sometimes they like the color pink and take on the job of teaching children. Harry Potter is a series that revolutionized the way people see witches, but that doesn't mean bad witches do not exist within that universe. Dolores is a nightmare hidden under a bright, colorful disguise. She isn't afraid to make children bleed as punishment for small things and will do most unjust deeds with a sweet tone and a practiced smile. Ugh. Number eight, Helena Marcos from Suspiria. Literally bone chilling. This 2018 supernatural horror film was inspired by an Italian film of the same name from 1977. The movie focuses on an American woman who goes to a prestigious dance school in Berlin that is actually run by a witch coven. It's a pretty artistic film with a focus on themes like motherhood and the abuse of power. And Helena is an unnatural looking figure due to her magically induced old age. Her voice itself seems decayed and unnerving. And on the inside, though, she is even more ugly, willing to do anything to get a younger body for herself and not caring about her loyal followers at all. Number nine, Bathsheba from The Conjuring. Oh yeah, she belongs here. Bathsheba is a witch as well as a ghost in the film The Conjuring. She haunts her land and possesses the matriarch of families that move in, forcing them to murder their own children and then offing themselves. While there are multiple spirits in the film, Bathsheba is the most dangerous. Other spirits are tormented from guilt, while her spirit is bloodthirsty and unsympathetic. And finally we have number 10 is the Pit Witch from Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness is a classic horror comedy from 1992. It's the sequel to Evil Dead, and this witch is from a famous scene where Ash is fighting in a pit and people are watching from above. The witch design is horrifying, and she makes this permanent scream as she swipes at Ash. Um, The witch may not have scared viewers as much as it scared Ash, but the creature has a decent number of fans and even has its own action figure, which... I would absolutely burn if I ever came across it. Okay. And because I have to watch some sort of comedy or animated Disney classic before I go to bed after I've watched a horror movie, I'm going to leave you with some of my favorite protagonist witches. Uh, they may not all be perfect, and some of them might still be downright diabolical in their own way, but they make us love them nonetheless. Here they are. Again, let me know if you agree, disagree, or if you think I missed anyone. Elaine Parks from The Love Witch Filmmakers took a comedic approach with Elaine Parks in The Love Witch. After the death of her husband, Elaine looks for a fresh start in a new town and takes residence in a Victorian manner. Part of her witchcraft practice includes getting men to fall in love with her. She has an idyllic image of love, one that her suitors never seem to be able to fulfill. And perhaps it's the strength of her spells and potions causing the men to become obsessed with her. Elaine has to investigate what she's lacking inside that she's trying to fill with a romance. And despite being released in 2016, Elaine has a distinctively vintage disposition and is quite enchanting. Next up is Jane Spofford from The Witches of Eastwick. The Witches of Eastwick is a comedy starring three powerhouses, Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Susan Sarandon. Uh, And this book-to-movie adaptation features three women who learn the meaning behind the phrase, be careful what you wish for. Each has been unlucky in love, and Jane herself has just gotten divorced and realizes she can't have kids. So these three women get together and talk about their ideal partners, and before long, they meet exactly that but it's not as picture-perfect as they thought. Enter the big reveal that each of their perfect match is the same man, and not entirely a man at all, as Jack Nicholas portrays the devil himself. Jane is the most introverted in the group at the start of the movie, making her character arc by the end all the more satisfying. Next up is Mary Sibley from the Salem series. Salem, Massachusetts is, of course, a hotspot for movies and series about witches. Salem, a 2014 series, is also set during the Salem witch trials and centers on Mary Sibley. She is a witch, and unlike many witches depicted in this period, she isn't concerned with hiding who she is. Instead, she wants to feed into the panic drowning the town and has an evil plan in mind. However, when her former flame comes back to town, it serves as a road bump in her scheme. Her icy demeanor and powers make it crystal clear why the men in town fear her and seek to destroy her. You'll feel how fed up Mary is with being attacked and will start to root for her the entire time, despite her intentions. Also, gotta love Mary Sanderson from Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus is a Halloween film about a group of kids. I mean, I don't know. I don't even think I have to explain hocus-pocus to anyone here, but it's a Halloween film about a group of kids wanting to destroy the Sanderson sisters, a trio of is seeking to steal the souls of children. Winnie, the leader, is known for her crabby personality and cruelty. Sarah, known as the naive and childish one with the voice that lures victims. And then we have Mary Sanderson, not appreciated enough. She helps the cause by being able to detect when children are near through her sense of scent. And Mary is fiercely loyal to her siblings and is willing to roll with the punches, such as using a vacuum for her flight in the sky rather than a broom. Um, Mary's hilariously weird facial expressions only add to her charm. Next, we have Misty Day from American Horror Story Coven. Misty Day is a character who stands out with her unique, unpretentious personality, strong moral compass, resilience and empathy, all making her a fan favorite and one of my favorites for her kindness and her authenticity in the midst of dark and often morally complex storylines found in American Horror Story Coven. And I can't depart from American Horror Story without also talking about Myrtle Snow, but particularly from American Horror Story Apocalypse. Myrtle Snow is a very eccentric personality who is present in both coven in Apocalypse, but I loved her in, I felt like she really flourished in the Apocalypse season. She truly shined here with her strong sense of justice, her loyalty, her redemption arc, her absolutely iconic fashion, and her ability to bring humor to situations with her clever and utterly devastating one-liners. <laughs> okay, I also have three doubles here because I could no sooner separate them than I could choose a favorite amongst them. And they are Aunt Zelda and Hilda from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Aunt Franny and Jet from Practical Magic, and of course, Sally and Jillian Owens from Practical Magic. And finally, my last pick, and I have to give a shout out to the witchy historian for also choosing this witch, Bonnie Bennett from The Vampire Diaries. Bonnie Bennett is a complex character with a strong moral compass, powerful magical abilities that are intrinsically connected to her link to her ancestors. She is intensely loyal to the people she loves. She's willing to make personal sacrifices for what she believes is right. And she's unconquerably resilient. And all the while, somehow, she's also relatable. Her strength and her journey from an ordinary girl to a powerful witch is an inspiration. All right. I think I've filled your time and your ears with enough spooky folklore and pop culture having to do with witches for now. And I hope you enjoyed this little detour from our usual content. Next week, we'll be continuing with the October series of A's for All Hallows Eve with the history and everything else you always wanted to know about Halloween. And then we'll finish up with a special Samhain episode on the 27th. So please be well and have an amazing weekend. so much for listening to this episode of A Is For Agrimony, Coffee Stained Notes on Witchcraft. If you like what you've been hearing, please drop me a review wherever you're listening. If you'd like some more content, please go to AIsForAgrimony.com where you can find my blog, episode archive, spells and rituals, the living grimoire, and soon to come, the coven shop. You can follow me on Instagram at A underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony, that's an underscore in between each word over on threads under the same exact handle. Or you can like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash A is for Agrimony. Want to contact me? Shoot an email to reachmargo at aisforagrimony.com. And if you're interested in some exclusive bonus content, you can join the community over on Patreon at patreon.com slash A is for Agrimony, where I share early release, unedited video format episodes, weekly collective card readings, monthly spells, occasional bonus content, and more to come. Again, thank you for listening, be well, and have an amazing weekend.